Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We ask you to bless this time as we open your word and we study. We ask you to guide and lead us into what you would want us to know. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Zechariah chapter 8. This is kind of interesting because it's all about the restoration of Jerusalem. And the language on it makes me believe that it is not talking about the time that Zechariah lived in. I believe it's talking about the Millennial Kingdom restoration. Um, But to try to verify that, I looked over a couple of commentaries, and they all said that it had already happened. And I don't buy that, and we'll see as we go along. Um, So Zechariah chapter 8, starting at verse 1. Again, the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I was zealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I was jealous of her with great fury. Thus saith the Lord, I am returned unto Zion, I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called the city of truth, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, there shall be old, there shall yet Old man and old women dwell in the streets of Jerusalem, and every man with his staff in his hand for very age. The streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets thereof. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, If it be marvelous in the eyes of the remnant of this people in these days, should it also be marvelous in my eyes, saith the Lord of hosts? Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country. I will bring them, and they shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in truth and in righteousness. So we're going to stop there. Uh, We look at this, and remember the time period is that the people have just come out of captivity from Babylon, the Medo-Persians, Darius, uh, Cyrus has sent them back, Darius has sent them back. They have rebuilt the city walls, they've rebuilt the city of Jerusalem, they have rebuilt the temple. Uh, But never does this stuff seem to happen during that period of time. Contrary to what all the people have been, all the experts out there are saying. Um, So it starts out with God saying, I was jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I was jealous for her with great fury. Now this is kind of an interesting thing. We don't usually think of God being jealous and yet God uses this term several times in the scriptures in Nahum 1.2, uh, Zechariah 1.14, Exodus 34.14, <laughs> Deuteronomy 4.28 and 6.15, Joshua 24.19, uh, Joel 2.18, and even in 2 Corinthians 11.2, God says that he is a jealous God. Now, the problem with us, when we hear the word jealous, we think of uh, possessive of something so badly that we don't let them do anything. And in one degree, that is God's reason for jealousy. He is so jealous of us that he is not going to let us be abused and conquered by Satan. And this is where true jealousy, there is a place for jealousy within a relationship when somebody literally sees somebody making a play for their, for their partner. There is a true jealousy that says, well, I just think I'm going to let them see what they're going to do. No, that's not what we do. And that's not what God's going to do. He says, I am jealous for my people Zion. And he says, with a great jealousy. So this is his possessive jealousy that says, I am not going to allow anything to come between us. 
And Satan is always trying to come between man and God. And God says, no, I am not going to allow that. I am going to defend myself, our relationship. And this is a good thing uh, to have in a relationship where somebody says, no, I'm not going to allow anybody to come in and break this relationship up. And again, with humanity, we tend to get jealous for the wrong reasons. Uh, and jealousy can be to the point where either the husband or the wife or the boyfriend, girlfriend doesn't even let the other one out of their sight for a night, even to hang with the, you know, the guys or the girls, you know, um, you know, at all. And that's not good. Um, but here God is saying, I am jealous. And he says, I was jealous with a great fury. Now, this is talking about his anger. This fury is not a light, lightweight word. It is literally that God was angry and he was protective. So protective when they rebelled against him and they basically, as God said, they committed adultery with him, with other, you know, against him with other gods. He says, I'm sending them into captivity for judgment. But he bought them back. He brought them back into Jerusalem. And he says, For thus saith the Lord, I am returned unto Zion, I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called the city of truth, the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. And here we have again God saying, I'm returning back to Jerusalem. And we don't get the indication that when they built the second temple, that God's glory fell upon it. When he built the tabernacle, God's glory fell upon it. And when they built the first temple that Solomon built, God's glory fell upon it, so much so in both instances that nobody could, would even come close to these event, the, these, these uh, buildings until God had lifted his glory off. In the second temple, we don't see that. And I don't believe that this is referring to God saying, I'm coming to dwell in this temple. He goes, you've rebuilt your temple, but this is not the temple that I am going to indwell. The third temple is not going to have that indwelling presence of God at first. It won't be until the millennial kingdom that God literally comes down, dwells among his, dwells among his people, fills Jerusalem, makes it the capital of the world, which is what the Jews are waiting for even to this day. They're waiting for the Messiah to come and take over Jerusalem and that Jerusalem becomes the center of all the world uh, government and religion. And I believe this is talking, I very clearly believe this is talking about the millennial kingdom, not, not the period of time that Zechariah is, is speaking of. And he goes, they will call it the mountain of the Lord. And this is a term that God uses for Jerusalem quite frequently. Oh, Jerusalem's on the top of the mountain. Uh, when you go to Jerusalem, no matter what way you go to Jerusalem, you go up. No matter what side you come from Jerusalem, you're going up. It's at the top of the mountain. Uh, the temple is on the top of the mountain. Uh, Golgotha is up there on the top of the mountain. Everything is there at the top of the mountain. And anywhere in Israel, if you're going to go to Jerusalem, you're going up. And that's why they always refer to the Bible that we're going up to Jerusalem. Uh, the last few, the last, uh, I think it's 10 Psalms in the scriptures 
are the songs of ascent. They sang those songs as they went up Jerusalem for their uh, feast days. And they would sing those songs as they climbed the, climbed the ascent to, to Jerusalem. And so this is, a pretty, this is a God's mountain. He calls it his mountain. All through the Psalms, it talks about uh, the mountain of, of the Lord or the mountain of God. Um, Isaiah 2 and, uh, 2, 2 and 3 says the same thing. Isaiah 30, verse 30, uh, 29 says the same thing. God always refers to this as his mountain, his city. And this is kind of an interesting thing, and I've said this before. For some reason, God has picked up the place on earth that is really his is Jerusalem. He says it over and over. It's his mountain, his city, his people. And why he's picked Jerusalem, I don't know. Uh, but he has picked Jerusalem. And it sits there, and it's where he's going to make his main city. It's going to be the center of all commerce during the millennial kingdom. And this is the hope of the Jews, that God will make this his city, and that everything will reign out of that from a descendant of David, which is Jesus, and that he is going to reign. And they're, they're, they're waiting for it. And God even says, you know, I'm going to come back. I'm going to make this my city, my mountain. And if you don't remember, Zion is a, is a poetic word for Jerusalem. So anytime you see Zion, it's referring to Jerusalem and or that mountain that it sits on. It's called Zion. It's called Mount Moriah. Uh, it's called many different names in the Bible, which makes it hard sometimes to figure out. <laughs> you know, you're reading through and you're going, well, what is this? And if you don't remember Mount Moriah, that is where Abraham took Isaac when he was going to make the offering. He took him to Mount Moriah when God provided the, the, the lamb, the ram to be offered in Isaac's place. And uh, so we have the picture of Calvary right there, except it was a long time before the city was built. And so we see all these different names, and God says, this is my city. It's going to be called the city of truth. And he says, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Now, it has always been considered by the Jews to be the, the holy mountain. The, the tabernacle, the, the temple sits on it. That's where they offer their sacrifices. That's where everybody was to go three times a year, was to the temple, or the tabernacle originally. And God says that, there shall, there shall yet old men and old women dwell in the streets of Jerusalem, to every man with his staff in his hand for, for very aged. In other words, they're going to get old. <laughs> very aged. It's kind of an interesting term. Means, um, it literally means that they're going to be there for a long period of time. And what is he saying? You've just come back to Israel. The old people did not come back to Israel from out, out in the in way very, very much. It was mostly the, the younger people because they were looking for that adventure. Because even though Israel was their home, on one side, they'd been away from it for 70 years. It had grown into a wild area. There was no city. Jerusalem was a waste. And they're going, we're going to go back. It was kind of like the Old West for the Americans. You went back there for adventure. You didn't, if you were just wanting to sit back and enjoy your, your old age, you didn't want to go back home. Now, many of the old people wanted to go back because it was home. And here's their chance to go home. Other people, and it's kind of amazing that they had a hard time getting people to go back to Israel 
from the Babylonian captivity because after 70 years, many of them had built homes and businesses and, and they basically said to everybody going, why do we want to go back? We, we're, we're happy where we are. I still think here they're talking about, I think they're talking about millennial kingdom in the long run. Uh, because the next verse says, and the streets of children will be full of boys and girls playing in the streets thereof. So yes, there's a two-way street here. They're filling it with people who feel, it's a picture of safety. You know, the people can wander even in their old age. You know, they're on their staff. They're using their staff wandering around at old age. Kids are playing in the streets. So in other words, they're saying it's a safe place to be. So yes, they've built the walls. There's some safety there. But I still think they're talking mostly about the millennial kingdom. Yeah, because in the millennial kingdom, don't we have very long lives? So very long life. Yeah. Yeah. We're back to uh, where one scripture tells us that if a person dies at 100 years old, they're, they're a child. So which indicates that they're back to living to be eight, 900 years. Uh, there's no verse that says that they're going to be that long, but you know, to be a child at 100 uh, indicates they're probably back to the original. It's as close to Eden as we're going to get in the fallen world <laughs> uh, because Jesus is ruling. And they've put Satan is waiting for judgment and the demons are waiting for judgment. And he's ruling with an iron rod so that sin is not prevalent. Uh, so yeah, life is going to be much longer. Uh, it appears that things are rolling backwards to, to where they were when they first started after having been almost wiped out. Uh, but so I would say these five and four and five could be taken either way. And that's why I'm not going to be dogmatic about it. But I think the safety it's projecting is more the millennial kingdom safety. A long life, very old age, young people playing in the streets. There's, there's this freedom and safety that's not found in cities. Usually when people live in cities, it's not where the old feel comfortable walking around and hanging out in the streets. You don't usually let your kids go playing in the street because it's just a dead, you know, dangerous place to be. And so I think this is more the millennial kingdom than back in their day. Uh, I, again, I'm not going to take a strong stance because I, I looked in three different uh, commentators that I like and all of them said that they believe this is his day. I just, I'm just not sure that I buy that. Zechariah's day. What's that? Uh, in my book, five, it refers to Jer, uh, Jeremiah 30, 19, and 20. Mm -hmm. And here it's saying that, um, then out of them shall proceed thanksgiving and the voice of those who make merry. I will multiply them and they shall not diminish. I will also glorify them that they shall not be small. Your children also shall be as before. Your congregation shall be established before me and I will punish all who oppress them. So that right there where it says, um, I will also glorify them so they shall not be small. That makes me think the millennial kingdom. Oh, every, every parallel that I saw in my Bible refers to millennial kingdom, refers to millennial kingdom verses. Uh, and this is why the my parallel in my Thompson chain makes me indicate that it's, par that it's millennial, and I believe it's millennial kingdom. Uh, I don't know why the other commentaries and I didn't read every single commentary out there I just read the three that I liked the most and and they all tended to say that this was their time and I just don't buy it the verses don't sound like it the verses don't sound like they're talking about Zachariah's day they all sound like more that they're talking about the millennial kingdom and it's amazing to me how many of the prophets talked about the millennial kingdom Jerusalem than anything else 
uh, you know, as you go through there, we see the millennial kingdom all over the place. But that's what the Jews are looking forward, the day that Israel becomes the center of everything. And we go to one world government, which is where the world, where Satan keeps wanting to try to take us to. He's trying to take our world to a one world government. He's did it, he did it, tried to do it with Nimrod you know, right after the flood. He's tried to do it with several leaders over there. And he's currently trying to accomplish it now. The only problem is without a perfect governor in charge or a king in charge of that millennial kingdom, it's nothing but trouble. One world government is nothing but trouble without the perfect ruler so that when Jesus rules as the perfect benevolent king of the world, it will be a good time. With Satan trying to rule the world, he's a malevolent or evil uh, ruler. It is not going to be good to be ruled by one, gov one government, one world, under Satan's rule. Under God's rule, it is going to be the perfect environment. And here's what, here's what we're seeing. Uh, and then it's kind of interesting for verse 6 says, For thus saith the Lord of hosts, If it be marvelous in your eyes, in the eyes of the remnant of this people in this day, should it also be marvelous in my eyes, saith the Lord of hosts? And this is kind of a rhetorical question. He's basically saying, If you think it's amazing that I'm saying this, should it be amazing to me? And it really is showing how small they think God is in their view. You know, and this is also how it is with many of us as Christians sometimes. We think that just because it's amazing to us, that somehow it is amazing to God that he can do things. And, you know, we've got to be careful about that attitude. And it's easy for it to slip in because we are people of sight. We see things by what we see, not by what, what they are. And God says, no, I see things not only as they truly are, but as they will be. Because remember, God is outside of time. So when he does things and says things, when he says that we are perfect, he declares us perfect at our salvation. He also sees us perfect because he knows what we're going to be made into. And this is the funny thing. God is never amazed at what's going to happen because he already knows what's going to happen. So when he says something's going to happen, he already knows because he sees it as completed. And so he says, you think this is amazing? You think it's amazing that I'm going to make Jerusalem the center? You're, you think it's amazing that people are going to be at rest and safety in Jerusalem? Do you expect that I'm going to be amazed by this? You know, and this is something that we need to be very careful of. And it is so easy for us to stop and think, wow, God, look at this. This is just so amazing. And somehow we tend to think that God's amazed by what he does. And we laugh about it, but, you know, don't we all really do that? We kind of get so amazed at what God does. We're going, God, you are so amazing. Aren't you amazed at what you've done? And God's shaking his head, no, it's amazing that you don't believe me. Yeah, well, you know, wow, I'm just so amazed that that sunrise came up. I'm just so yeah. amazed that that, that that land cleaned up itself after it was polluted. I'm just, you know, you know God is not surprised by anything. And I think we, the more we realize that, the better off we're going to be. Because we actually settled for so much less from God than he wants to give us because we don't think that he wants to give us and bless us the way that he wants to bless us. He knows so much more than we do because he's outside of time. 
And this is the beauty. God already sees us as in our glorified being that we will have when we're resurrected, when we're, when we're raptured or resurrected, he already sees us as perfect that he's going to make us. And we're going to be a beautiful, we'll make the sunrise look like nothing. But, but we've got to understand that, you know, that God sees things totally different than we see them. He already sees the new heaven and new earth that's going to come at the end of time because he's already there. Yeah, and he knows what the new heaven and new earth is going to be like with the perfection involved with it, with us living in it, worshiping him and following after him and doing whatever it is we do in the new heaven and new earth. He's already there. He is seeing us as we will be for us. But he's already there, so it's not will be for him. It is as we are. But we don't see ourselves as we will be or as God sees us because we see ourselves in time. And it's hard for us to understand that because of, because of the fact that we dwell in time. We can't possibly, we can't change the past. We can't really control the future. And yet God says, I know the future already. And for us, it's like mind boggling. And God is saying, you think it was marvelous? You, you, you think that what I'm saying is marvelous? Do you think I'm amazed by the same thing? And Basically, it's a rhetorical question, but the answer, of course, is no. <laughs> you know, he's not. And that's what he said. Uh, should it also be marvelous to my eyes? So he's asking that question. Do you think, I, you think I'm going to be amazed by this? And then he goes on. I will bring them, and they shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in truth and in righteousness. And again, this is something that has not been happening to the children of Israel as a nation. Now, during this period of time, certain individuals were following God. Even in Jesus' day, certain individuals were following God, but the nation was not. And in the Israel of today, not very many are following God in, a, in the truth and righteousness. The Orthodox are following him in tradition dreaming of the day that they can have a tabernacle so they can offer, offer their sacrifices. But everything they do is about tradition. They don't truly know God. Because even when Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this, our Father. Now, the Jews do not pray to God as a Father. They do not pray to him as a loving, caring individual, though they know he cares more than most gods, but they don't see him as somebody that wants to bless and unfortunately, many Christians don't see God as a God who wants to bless and give us things. Oh, they use a lot of formulas. They just they use a, they pray more more like many different denominations where they just say most of them say the Shema, the Lord our God is one God, and that's about you know and they they don't do a lot of intense praise. They don't they don't look at God as being personal. He is the God of the nation. They're his people, but they don't look at him as a personal God that loves them. Now, the Bible is full of him being a personal God. David saw him as a personal God. Many of the prophets saw him as a personal God that loved them, not just the nation. But as a group of people, they don't see God as a personal, loving God. Israel worships God because they don't, Jews worship God, but they don't believe in Jesus, they're not doing it righteously? 
Not necessarily. Most of them just get into tradition. Uh, unfortunately, lots of Christians do tradition. You come to church on Sunday morning, you sing your songs, you listen to a message, and you go home. Now, let's so you give your tithe, you give some money to God in, in, in the process. And if you're really, really on top of things, you go to church that night and in the midweek service. And then you forget about God all, all the rest of the time. They don't know God in a personal way, even many Christians. Uh, it's just a practice. Kind of, I know him in church. He's at church. I'll go to meet him in church. I'll do the things I have to do that'll please him, and maybe he'll like me enough to do good things, give me some good things that week. And unfortunately, many Christians are that way. I'm going to show up in God. I'm going to do my time on Sunday morning. Uh, I'll give God. I'll give God some of my time, you know, and and maybe because I gave him some time, he'll be nice to me that week. You know, now, none of, very few people with that attitude actually give God a tithe of their time. They go to church between 11 and, and noon, and they're waiting, and they're looking at their watch. If you go to some churches, they're looking at their watch. As soon as noon hits, if that service isn't over, they're headed for the doors because they're there doing their time. Uh, God, I, I owe you one hour a week. I'm going to go give you an hour, but don't ask for more than that hour. They kind of, many of these Christians remind me of many of the prisoners. You know, some of those guys have it down. I've got five, I've got five months, three days, and three hours left. And they're just clicking off the time until they can get out, do something bad, and come back. And many Christians are that way. All right, God, oh, God, I've, it's almost 11 o'clock. I've got to go to church. All right. All right, Pastor, the time's almost up, you know, you know, you can only go to noon. You know, my time is up at noon. You got to get done. And this is the sad thing that's out there. There's a lot of people that are that way. They see God as just this mean ogre that's demanding service of them, not a person who loves them so much that he died for their sins so that he could have a personal relationship with them for eternity. And you know, we have to be careful because it's easy even for us to do that. Uh, just get to this place where we're looking at God as just obligations. Just obligations. Okay, God, I'm reading my Bible. Okay, God, yeah, yeah, I'll give you some prayer time. I'll give you my time in church. I'll worship, I'll whatever, you know, whatever we use as our, as our tick off. We need to be careful because God's saying, I want to know you. I want to know you so special. And his term that he uses is that we are married. He said Israel was married to him. Jesus is married to, his, to the church. That is an intimacy that we need to really contemplate. You know, how, would, how would a marriage go if we spent one hour, let's say, let's say we're really good. We, spend, we, we go to Sunday school, we go to church, we go to midweek, and we go to Sunday night, and we, and we, and we give them maybe, maybe an hour every day. Every day. So let's say we're, we're, giving God, you know, we're, we're giving God about 13 hours, and we say, all right, my marriage gets 13 hours a week. Well, unfortunately, there's lots of marriages that do that. But those marriages also suffer when that happens. When there's so little time with your spouse, it is going to suffer. And yet, we treat Jesus the same way oftentimes. And, you know, this is what he's saying. I, it's not marvelous. And then he says, 
This says the Lord, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country. Now, this is kind of an interesting statement. The east country, most people believe that he rescued them from Babylon, which was to the, to the east of them. The west country mean, literally means to the setting sun. Uh, and so some people say that that means that he saved them from Rome, which technically he has saved them from Rome. Rome dispersed them in, in 70 AD and they've been saved. I think that he means what, he, what is getting ready to happen, that he's going to save all the Jewish people from around the world. It's very interesting that Jews are flocking to Israel at this day and age. And many of them are saying they just can't wait to get there. They want to be there. And I think as anti-Semitism keeps getting stronger and stronger in this world, more and more Jews are going to go to Israel. And God's gathering his people. He said that, there, that in the last days his people will gather to Jerusalem. He will call them. And I think that is happening to many Jews. They're feeling an urge to go to Jerusalem where God is going to protect his people in the end days after the, toward the end of the tribulation when they finally realize that the Antichrist has tricked them. And more and more Jewish people are going back to Israel. Why? Because it's the one place that they truly feel is theirs. You know, you go back to there and Judaism is the main official religion, even though there's freedom of religion there, it is the one place they can go and know that they're accepted because it is their home. And this is where they, they're going to be gathering. And we're seeing anti-Semitism rising again all over the world. Even in America, it's becoming really big uh, feature against the Jews. And in Europe, they're really anti-Semitic right now. And the rest of the world's been anti-Semitic. So they're going back and God is calling his people from, from the east to the west. So I'm, even though the east here isn't at sunrise, I'm going to say from the sunrise to the sunset, God is calling his people, the, the entire world. And he says, I will bring them and they shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. They shall be my people and I will be their God in truth and in righteousness. So again, God's saying they're going to be my people and as a nation, they're going to finally recognize him as their God. Now, all through the generations, God has had a remnant of Jewish believers that truly followed him. Most of the people are kind of like American Christians and European Christians. They're kind of just Christian in name. It's, it's, it's cool and okay to be a Christian, so you're, you're, you're a Christian. And we don't hear it as much, you know, back in the 60s and 70s and even the 80s, you were, almost everybody who was American said they were Christian. You know, I'm an American, of course I'm a Christian. And now it's not such a big deal. People don't say that as much as they used to. And now we're starting to recognize that being a Christian is making a decision to follow Christ. Now we have the other extreme of the liberal Christians who are just Christians in name only. Uh, why? I have no idea. Most of them don't believe in the Bible. They don't believe in Jesus. They don't believe that he died for their sins. So I have no idea why they're calling themselves Christ followers uh, in any way, shape, or form. But it's kind of funny when you talk to somebody and they go, well, I'm a Christian. Oh, so you know Jesus. Well, no, I don't believe in Jesus. Well, you believe in the Bible. Uh, no, don't believe in the Bible. 
well then why are you calling yourself a Christian? You know, you don't believe in the Bible, you don't believe in Jesus, you don't believe that he died for your sins, you don't, don't believe you're a sinner in the first place, so why would you call yourself a Christian? And, you know, they don't have an answer for it. And we're seeing less of it in this day and age. You know, there's a lot less people calling themselves Christians, but there's still a lot of people out there that were raised in a church. You know, the church, the church they were raised in probably never taught the gospel, never taught the Bible, uh, but they call themselves a Christian because they went to church every Sunday morning. What do they teach them? I don't get it. They, you would be surprised what gets taught. They will, read, they will read a Bible verse or two and then talk about whatever. And talk about how you're supposed to be happy and, and happy and wealthy and, uh, you know, so this is what it boils down to. But unfortunately, this happens even in Jew Jewish synagogues. They don't really preach what they taught. They, they'll read the scriptures and they still to this day will read through the Pentateuch every year. And they'll read through the prophets over a period of five years but they very rarely talk about what they read. The rabbi will talk some, you know, homily about being nice to one another and doing good deeds and, and the same thing that happens in many churches. Uh, and this is why we need to be in a church that preaches the word of God, that teaches the word of God and holds it up because the world is getting fewer and fewer of the churches that really teach. Now, don't get me wrong, there's still a lot of churches out there teaching the Bible, but they are becoming the minority nowadays. And there's a lot of them that don't teach the Word of God. There, there are many people that have gone to church all their life that have never read the Bible all the way through. They have not had many teachings from the Bible because the, the pastor doesn't teach the Word of God. And then the handful that do teach the Word of God, there's most of them don't try to go through the whole Bible. You know, they have their favorite sets of scriptures and in you know, any three to five year period you'll go through the same, same sets of scriptures. And I'm not faulting those pastors. They're, many of them do a good job with the, with the scriptures they teach, but they leave out so much of what the word of God says because they just refuse to deal with it. Just like last night, we dealt with a very hard, you know, almost gross section of the scripture, but yet we have to cover, if we're going to cover the entire word of God, we cover all those things, even the ones that, don't, that aren't fun to cover. Uh, you know, some of them are fun to cover. You know, there's certain things that are really fun. They're, they're upbuilding, they're edifying, you make you feel good. There's some that are very hard hitting us in the face every time we turn around. There's some that are just historical and they're hard to go through. But you know, we can't skip over things just because they're difficult. Because everything in there gives us something to learn from and, and, and how God delivers in the midst of things. And so we see this and we challenge people to go through and preach the word of God. Now, the problem I have is it takes about 12 years for me to go through the entire Bible. I'm on track to get there. In about four more years, I figure I'll be done with the Bible and can start all over again. Uh, and, you know, so... Hopefully, after I've been here for 24 years, I can start a third time. Uh, I don't know. That's a long time away yet, so I don't know if that's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, 
takes me three hours to get to church now. <laughs> but all of this is what is happening nowadays is that people are falling away from God's word. They pick and choose what they want and they pick and choose what to avoid. And this is not good. You know, many times, and I've told you, some of the times I'm preaching to myself when I teach because I'm looking at these scriptures and going, uh, this is me. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm stepping on my own toes as much as I step on anybody else's toes oftentimes. But you know, God is saying, I will be their God in truth and in righteousness. And again, the millennial kingdom, when he literally is there, they see him. They know who he is. They're not following him out of just tradition. Now, the sad thing is, even during that period of time, there are going to be people that follow him only out of tradition. Because there's this indication that you go to the temple to see him and you worship him. And outside of the temple, they'll be just like they are today. Because during the millennial kingdom, not everybody is going to be a true follower of God. Even though they can see him. Now, there will be less non-true followers because they see him, but there's still going to be a number of people that on their day-to-day living are not going to live for God, even though he's right there. Why? Because of our sin nature, we still have a choice. Now, they won't be able to live in sin necessarily. I believe that when God says he rules with an iron rod, that he's ruling with an iron rod. Sin won't be happening during his uh, won't be open in front of people. And when we want to talk about thought police, God would be the ultimate thought police. You know, I can just, I can picture it, you know, you know, things are getting really bad. Maybe we should go rob the store. Uh, no, that's not happening. You're not, you <laughs> uh, what, what, you, you thought about it. <laughs> you know, will it be that extreme? I don't know, but God can make sure that he is, forcing them, and and I really believe that that enforced obedience is going to be why Satan, when he's released, can draw such an army against God. Because all of a sudden, there's going to be this chance. We have freedom to rebel now. And Satan is going to bring a large group of people to rebel against God in the last battle. And that battle will be a really quick one. They'll, They'll go up, God will speak, they'll die. Pretty Almost as, fa- almost as fast as his return from, you know, from, on Mount, on Mount uh, Olivet when he returns and he speaks and the, the last battle is over. And then one last battle at the end of the millennial, millennial kingdom and then the white throne judgment. You know, you don't go against God. God is powerful. He cannot be beat. He cannot be deceived. Verse 9. Thus saith the Lord of hosts... Let your hands be strong, ye that hear in these days these words by the mouth of the prophets, which were in the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid, that the temple might be built. For before these days there was no hire of men, nor hire of beasts, neither was there any peace to him that went out and came in because of the affliction. For I set all men, every one, against his neighbor. But now I will not be unto the, but now I will not be unto the residue do with this people as in the former days, saith the Lord of hosts. For the seed shall, pros- shall be prosperous, the vine shall give her fruit, the ground shall give her increase, and the heavens shall give their due. And I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all things. 
It shall come to pass that as you were a curse among the heathen, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so you will, I will save you and you shall be a blessing. Fear not, let your hands be strong. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, as I thought to punish you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, saith the Lord of hosts, I, and I repented not. So again have I thought in these days to do well unto Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear not. So God is telling the people, be strong and listen to the words of the prophets in the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid, that the temple might be built. This one can be taken in many ways. <laughs> it could be the foundation relayed during their day. It could be the foundation of the third temple. It could be the refoundation when God takes over that foundation. We don't know. Um, oops. And uh, so we see here that God says, listen to the prophets. Too many times the children of Israel did not listen to the prophets. Most of the prophets gave prophetic utterances. And it's kind of an amazing, I've heard statements say that as much as two-thirds of the Bible is prophecy. And most of, much of that has been fulfilled already. And if it really is that high, and I, I'm not going to doubt it because the more I read it, the more prophecy I see in the Bible. It seems like every time I read it, I see more and more prophetic statements that I never noticed before. So I'm not going to argue that the Bible isn't two-thirds prophecy. It's at least one-third prophecy. I'm going to put it that way definitely. I can, you can find at least one-third prophecy. It has a lot of prophecy in it. And God is fulfilling the prophecy over and over again. And the Jews, for the most part, spend time in the first five books of the Bible. Now, there's a lot of prophecy in the first five books of the Bible, but it's mostly historical at this point. And the Jews spend all their time in that. They read through the Pentateuch every year. In the first five books of the Bible, they, they have a program to read it in the synagogue every year. So they divide it into 52 parts and just read through it. And, but he's saying, I want you also to pay attention to the prophets. The prophets. And it says, for these days there were no hired men, nor hired beasts, neither was there any peace to him that went out and came in because of the affliction. For I set all men one against his neighbor. But I, but now will I be unto the residue of this people as in the former days, saith the Lord of hosts. Again, here I believe he's talking about the tribulation period and the, and the, and the millennial kingdom because he says everybody is against each other. And we're starting to see that happen in our day and age. People are against one another. I mean, several of the governors in America have encouraged their people to report anybody who doesn't live by the standards that the governors have set. And we're seeing people actually want to do this stuff. We saw it in Hitler's Germany when people would report their neighbors. You didn't know whether you could trust your family or your friends or, or anybody. And we're seeing more and more of that in this day and age. And it will come to full fruition during the tribulation period. Where anybody who doesn't follow the way of the Antichrist will be turned in. Because people are going to go for those rewards. They're going, and they're going to see these people as agitators. And we're seeing it even in this day. People look at those who do right and follow God 
as agitators. They're troublemakers. They're, 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 not, they're not buying in to the, to the norm. And this is where we need to be very careful because we as Christians are going to be seen as troublemakers. During the Roman Empire, many times during the persecutions, Christians were seen as troublemakers because they would not make sacrifices to the, to the gods and goddesses. They would not make sacrifice to the Caesars. They would not participate in all the filth that was going on in, around them. Uh, and this was a time, and we think it's bad now, but Rome was bad. Rome was, was a horrendous place. The, the, the athletic games were, were done in, 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 in nudity. There was no clothing in, involved. Uh, their, their activities, most of their theater was without much clothing and everything. It was a worked place, and Christians were pulling away from all of that stuff, and people were doing just as our people in today. You think you're better than us. You think you're, you think you're, you're something, don't you, because you're not participating in all of this. And then they would be accused, and then, then hard times would come against them, and they would be executed because they were different. And they drew conviction upon people by their lifestyle because people knew what they were doing was wrong. Even though was, society was accepting it, people knew in their heart that what they were doing was wrong. And this is what he's saying. People are going to turn each other in. He goes, all of this is going to happen. He goes, but I'm going to love you like I did in the former days. And here he's pointing back to the days of David, back to the days of the Exodus, back to when he protected his people. And in those days, you would hear people say, where is the God that delivered, that did these miracles? Gideon's question, when God called him, he goes, well, where, where is the God who did all these miracles? You know, and God's saying, I'm right here. I'm getting ready to do a miracle, and I'm going to use you to be the one that does this miracle. But we hear that even today. Yeah. Oh, yeah, where, where is the God? We have churches that believe that God is no longer the same. He did miracles in the past and no longer does them. You know, I don't know what Bible they're reading. I don't know what God they're following. My God still does miracles. He still heals people. He still provides. He still does amazing things for his people. And we see it, and we see it all through the scriptures. People will go, well, where is the God that did this? You know, and they're talking to the angel. You know, where, where have you been? You know, if you're our God and you, and you love us so much, where have you been? You know, as we've been sinning and not deserving your, your attention, but, you know, you haven't been delivering us while we're sinning, but where have you been? You know, and all the time that was the question. You know, uh, and God is saying, I was just waiting for you to repent. When you came to repentance, now I can step in and deliver. And I can be mighty in, for you. And this is where we are in our world. Our world is so sinful, so uh, turned away from God, that God is waiting. Is there going to be repentance? Is there going to be true repentance for him to be able to rescue? And I don't know. If there's repentance, then we will gain 60 to 100 years before he returns. I think we're so far gone that we may not see this, but who knows what's going to happen. I would love to see revival. I'm not holding out for a major revival. I hope that we see minor revivals all over the place. I want to see chloride have a great revival in it. I'd like to see Arizona have a great revival in it. And who knows? 
Will we have a great worldwide revival or even nationwide revival? I have my doubts. Because even the majority of the churches are not preaching the word of God. They're very much, if we look in, look in the days of Israel, we very much see what was happening there. So many times that the priest would have to leave the temple because nobody was giving their offerings and, and worshiping God and, they, and the priest got their income from the people giving their tithes and offering. So the priest would have to leave the temple to go back home so they could raise crops and one or two of them would stay around the temple just in case there was somebody who wanted to worship. But they starved. Many times we had seen people like Hezekiah, then it took months for them to re-clean out the temple because it had become a junkyard. All right? Not necessarily trash, but just anything they didn't want was stored in the temple. You know, uh, and it took them months to clean it out when it was time to worship God. And each time they did, they found one very valuable thing in the temple, the word of God. And then they would read it and it would break their heart at what they, all the rules of God that they had broken. It would be so great if more people in America, especially that every single family in this country has a Bible in their house somewhere, if they would just read it and know what God says. But so many of them don't read it. It's been said that the Bible is the world's best-selling book that nobody reads. And it unfortunately is true. It sells better than any other book, even in this day and age. But there's only a handful of people who truly read it and try to follow it, much less try to just read it. Yeah, and it's very important. Then he, then he goes on and it says, uh, verse 12, for the seed shall be prosperous, the vine shall give her fruit, the ground shall give her increase, and the heavens shall give their due. And I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. And I love this. Even for Israel today, Israel today has taken what they bought, and, and the Jews were given the land by decree, but the Jews had to buy most of the land from the Arabs. When they bought it, it was swampland. The waters weren't running, it was swampy, it was good for mosquitoes. And the Jews bought their land at a high price, and the Arabs and the Palestinians, whatever, whatever you want to call they went laughing it to the bank. You know, we took, we took them for everything they've got. Now they want the land because the Jews have been able to drain the waters and turn it into a garden. I mean, literally, they consider Israel a garden. It produces enough food in Israel to feed most of Europe and the Middle East. And now, all those people who were laughing to the bank for having taken advantage of them want the land back and say it was stolen from them. And the Jews bought most of the land. You know, even though it's not recognized, they bought it. They've got title deeds that they bought. And everybody's trying to say they stole the land from them. And why? Because it's worth something now. It was swamp. <laughs> now it's worth everything. And this is definitely a picture of what it is now. But I think it's a small picture of what it is now. When it, when it is in the millennial kingdom, Israel is going to be the garden. <laughs> it is going to be the place. And probably produce enough for the entire world to be fed even though everything else is going to be cleaned up as well. But here he says, I'm going to return it, and you are going to be prosperous. 
And then in verse 13, And it shall come to pass that as you were a curse among the heathen, O house of Israel, of Judah, and house of Israel, so I will save you and you will be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. Israel, even in our day, is considered a curse. The land of Israel, the Jewish people, we, it, is, it is an amazing thing to listen to people talk about Jews. And they still talk about them as being people that are treacherous and deceitful and manipulative. And we're seeing it over and over. And God says, people considered you a curse? Don't fear. You are going to be considered a blessing. During the millennial kingdom, everybody's going to be looking to, to Jerusalem. The Jewish people will now have a high place in people's minds because that is the headquarters of the one world government is, will be Israel. And he says, you are going to be a blessing. Uh, and then verse 14 says, For thus saith the Lord, as, as I thought to punish you, when your fathers provoked me to wrath, saith the Lord of hosts, and I, re and I repented not, so again have I thought in these days to do well unto Jerusalem and to the house of Judah, fear not. In other words, he says, I punished you because of your evil, and I didn't repent. I'm saying I'm going to bless you. I'm not going to repent to that, bless, that blessing. God loves the children of Israel, the people of Israel. Why? Because of his grace and mercy. Now, we know that during the millennial kingdom, they're going to be his. At the beginning of the tribulation period, they're going to be tricked by Satan into following him. The Antichrist, he's going to come up and say, I'm your Messiah. He's going to give them peace with their people. He's going to give them decrees, and he's going to let them build their temple and offer sacrifices. They are going to think that they have reached the nadar of their, their existence. Everybody is going to be looking at them. The Antichrist is going to be saying, you're, you're my people. Halfway through the tribulation period, he steps up into the tabernacle and says, I am God, worship me. And at that point, their eyes are going to be opened. They're going to recognize that he is not God. And, they, and at that point, Jesus told them, at that point, flee from Jerusalem. Get out of Jerusalem. Don't wait to go get your bags. Don't wait to pack your bag. Get out of Jerusalem. Because when they turn against the Antichrist, he is going to turn against them with great fury. this event. Antichrist reveals who he is. Because at that point, everything, in the, everything even in, the, in, the, in Revelation and Daniel changes. They are, I mean, he's out to destroy the world before that, but now he is out to destroy every remnant of the Jew. And this is where God says, if I had not protected my people, they would have all died. And God puts a protection on them so Satan cannot destroy them. And literally, God protects them at that point. Because Satan is going to put all the forces of hell to try to destroy them. And we've discussed why. Because if he can destroy all of Israel, then he cannot have the millennial kingdom and cannot be fulfilled. So he's out to destroy them. And God's going to say, no, you're not destroying my people. And this is going to be a big event. When the Antichrist reveals himself for who he is, and the eyes of the Jews are open. This is not the Messiah. Now, you said it before, so does that mean that Satan's 
He's never off a leash. Even during the tribulation period, he's on a leash. Now, it's a longer leash. And he's, because if Satan was totally off the leash, all of mankind would be destroyed. Because that's what he wants. He wants, to de- he wants to destroy man because they are God's precious creation. And if he can destroy them before they have a chance to repent, God just gives them a longer leash and gives them a little more freedom. But he's not going to ever have ultimate freedom to do whatever he wants. Ever. Uh, so, and at the end of the millennial kingdom, when Jesus returns, we're going to see it in Zechariah, the, the people will look at him and says, who caused these wounds to you? And he goes, they were, they were caused by my, by my friends, meaning them. And they're going to recognize who he is and, and how he got his wounds. So there is a time when all of this comes full circle and Jesus is recognized by the remnant of the remaining Jews as the Messiah. As he comes back to set up the millennial kingdom, he is now the Messiah that they expected and they will know who he is. When they look at him in that time, they will... They will know that he is Jesus Christ or Yeshua Hamashiach in their language that, that came in, in uh, the first century A.D. And they will recognize him for who he is as Messiah and recognize that he is who he is. And they will have a thousand years of, of reigning in peace just as was promised. And so we see all of this coming back and he says... This is what it is. He goes, I am going to raise up the house of Israel and you will be blessed. And I wish we could get to the end of this chapter, but it's already seven o'clock, so we're going to stop. <laughs> because he is really going to talk about how blessed the people will consider, consider them. And they will get everything that they ever wanted out of this, out of this deal. Lord, we just thank you for your love, your care. Lord, your promise of a great millennial kingdom where you will be God of, over this world. And Lord, even better, that we will reign with you during that period of time in our glorified bodies as your bride and that we will reign with you during that period of time. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, do you know God? Not just know about him. Today is the day to decide to become his child. God loves you and Jesus came to die for your sins. In Romans 3.23, we are told, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. God says the penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell. However, Romans 5.8 says, But God commended his love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you so much, he died for us so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. How do we do this? Romans 10, 9-8 says that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Today is that day for you to come to God and truly know him. Do you know him? Do you want to know him? Pray in your own words like this, God, I know that I am a sinner and deserve punishment. I believe that Jesus died to pay my sins. Forgive me and help me to turn from my sins and to live for you. If you have asked this of God and truly believe you are God's child and part of of his family, we encourage you to do these things. First, tell somebody that you are saved. 
Second, start reading the Bible each day. We recommend starting with Ephesians and then the Gospel of John. Find a good Bible teaching church. If this is your, your day of salvation, you can contact us and we will send you a booklet to get started on your new life and are available to help you with any questions you have about the Bible. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by mail at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431.